But once word got out that it was being remade, all of these Kubrick, uh, the Kubrick army was like, he oh, has an no. army too. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, the director of Critters 2 doing The Shining. Ew. Uh, Who does he think he is, you know? Horror Movie Survival Guide is a weekly podcast where I, Gorehound Julia Marchesi, delves into my horror movie notebook to corrupt another one of my longtime chums, Terry Gamble, who is hiding in the creepy horror closet. My mission is to learn the gospel of horror movie survival and to incorporate Julia's wealth of wisdom to become a final girl disciple. Join us as we take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but preferably classics on VHS. We'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices. Spin off into alternate casting universes, crush on some dodgy, foxy fellows, and creepy uncles, and arm ourselves with the knowledge necessary to become the final girl. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide. I am Julia. And I'm Terry. Uh, this week, we have a very exciting interview. We are overjoyed to have a horror icon, writer, producer, director. You know him from so many incredible horror films, uh, including The Stand and the miniseries of The Shining and Sleepwalkers, uh, plus his own rad podcast, Postmortem. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mick Garris. Hello, Woo! Terry. Hello, Julia. Hello, audience. Right. Oh my God, Mick, like what a dream. Like you are literally like the Holy Grail of like, I feel like horror interviewing, like oh. you've literally interviewed everyone. So the fact that you're here on our humble show, we are so excited and cannot, I can't even express. Um, and well, I just, you have very low standards. That's all I have. <laughs> Uh, no i don't think so i mean you've literally interviewed some of our our biggest heroes from stephen king to Whoopi goldberg to you know karen kusama like you've interviewed you talked to so many people that we are like really super fans of and so and not even that like before that your life started like interviewing as a teen talking to people like janice joplin and Jimi hendrix (laughs) that's right yeah holy goodness like I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're just naturally an inquisitive person, but like, I just want to know a little about your journey and, and, and if you want to share with our audience, just like, I don't know, what made you fall in love with asking questions? Like what's, what, what drives you? Well, yeah, I've always been inquisitive. I've always had questions. And from the very earliest time when I was doing journalism for like a high school newspaper and I created my own high school newspaper and then a magazine called Arthur the Magazine, um, I realized that I could meet my heroes by interviewing them. And, ah. and if I were asking questions about things I knew about that most people weren't asking about, you'd really get to know these people really well um, because they would open up in ways they weren't used to. They were used to getting the same questions. But I wanted to interview people I was really interested in who were my heroes. And so I would definitely know more about them than the average media person. So yeah, I was probably 16 years old when I interviewed Janis Joplin, 17 at Jimi Hendrix. You know, the two of them both died at 27. They were part of that big 27 club, Mm -hmm. but rock and roll was my, my first passion. I mean, movies and cartoons when I was a kid, but in my uh, maturing years, it was really all about music. And I became a musician and and we opened for people like the Kinks and and the like back in the seventies. But um, it has always been a part of of who I am. I've always been curious. And, you know, each time I move into a different field uh, of work, 
um, I end up meeting people who I admire and, and they either become friends or people I work with or um, whatever kind of relationship. And it's, it's fun to be able to, to ask questions on a forum that gives you an excuse for asking nosy questions that you wouldn't want to do personally. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think we relate. Like listening to you talk about that, we're like, yes, we want to meet heroes. Yes, let's start interviewing people. And this, uh -huh. here we yeah. are with you. Um, wow. What is your like? Yeah. What's your wildest? I, I guess moment, interview moment that you've ever had, or the 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 best, and then maybe the wildest. Um, well, had. none of them are really wild. I mean, they're all really interesting because everybody I've ever interviewed, I hear them talk about things they've never talked about before. Because like you, I have a format that's an hour long. It's not just to promote a movie that's coming out that weekend, which is what most so-called uh, entertainment journalism is all about. Right. Sound bites and the like. But really sitting down one-on-one, -on -one, the ones that have been most fascinating to me are the people I didn't know all that well and only knew their work. Somebody like Peter Medak, who directed The Changeling. This was a guy oh, yeah. who hung hung out with the Beatles in the swinging sixties and oh my gosh. you know, Ugh. did such amazing work, the ruling class with Peter O'Toole. Yes, you know. That movie's incredible. Uh, and you know, the British crime dramas he did and like the craze and things like that. It just his life and leaving Hungary at a young age at a very dangerous time, you know, this is a life worth living and a life worth regaling and a life worth <clears throat> investigating and asking about. And we became friends when he did an episode of my Masters of Horror series. But mm -hmm. having him on the show was like, oh, my God, revelation after revelation. And somebody like Neil Gaiman, whose work I do not know all that well, but I was fascinated by the people I know the least are the ones I learned the most about. Huh. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, Neil's great. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, can we start at your horror beginnings? Can we <laughs> ask you uh, what, what the first horror movie you can remember watching is? Well, the first monster movie I remember watching was The Son of Kong. And oh, wow. it's not a scary movie. I saw it on TV. My mother had seen King Kong when she was two years old and it scared the shit out of her. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. In, in, in the movie theater. Um, oh, gosh. And I think she peed on her dad's lap. But uh, <laughs> so she was very cautious about it. She saw Son of Kong was coming on. And I was probably seven, seven years old, six or seven years old. And then I had an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. And she wanted to set it up in a very um, safe way, both parents watching with the four kids. And, you know, I was fascinated by this stop motion gorilla, the mm -hmm. giant gorilla. I'd never seen anything like it before. Now, King Kong is heartbreaking and it's terrifying especially for a two-year-old, or in my case, a six or seven-year-old. But Son of Kong is a comedy. It breaks your heart at the end, but it's mostly goofy and spoofy and satirical mm -hmm. and wonderful, and there's a sense of wonder to it. But it didn't scare me at all. And then it was, you know, I discovered horror on television way before going to the movies, but I actually saw Psycho at the drive-in theater in 1960, 61, when I was oh. a child. Nice. I, and so that was my debut uh, into horror on film on the big screen. Wow, could you ask for a better one? That's insane. I, 
And long before I ever knew I was going to direct Psycho 4 30 years later. Yes. <laughs> wow. The seed was planted, you know? Like, it oh was my indeed. goodness. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So do you think, so we have Sung and Kong as the first. What do you think is the scariest? Do you have a personal one that scares you? Uh, you know, I, I don't get scared by movies very much, but I, I enjoy the... I don't know the romance of fear. I, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of fear, um, you know, and when I saw the exorcist uh, in the theater in its opening weekend, you know, every time the camera was moving into the bedroom door that Reagan was behind, it was like, why am I here? I don't want to be, <laughs> what am I doing to myself? And yet um, it was, uh, you know, I went back again next the next week to see it. But maybe the most unsettling movie and scary in a truly psychologically believable way was uh, Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the twins played by Jeremy Irons, you see their their mental decline happen in such a believable, realistic way and played by an actor who is just so brilliant and directed by Cronenberg. The script and everything was so perfect. It's very unsettling. Uh, in a really, really dark way that, of course, I love. Well, oh, yeah. if you want unsettling and dark, Cronenberg is your man. I mean, he's, he's our guy. Hundred <laughs> percent. Like, can we add a dash of body horror? That's no problem. We got it. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'll take it. I, I Make remember. your skin crawl. <laughs> yeah. And his 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 common cry on his early movies was more blood. So. Mm-hmm. I think that should be a common cry on every horror movie set. To be I, honest, I should be the T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, merch idea. Thank you so much. You <laughs> so I know that you were really early on in the 80s uh familiar with and got your start uh talking with uh Joe Dante. Can, can we yeah. talk about Joe Dante? Because yeah. I also know Joe Dante. Um I used to work at the New Beverly Cinema and he used to come uh, in a whole bunch. And he's course. in my my documentary out of print. So I am I am friendly with him. So I, I would want to know about your beginnings with him if you would be w- willing to tell. Sure. I first met Joe at a screening of Piranha, and it was amazing. Uh, I was blown away by it. Uh, And um, actually, I met him at a party that Don Glute had. Don Glute is a big horror fan who's made a bunch of real D, uh, B-movie horror movies and dinosaur movies and things. Um, And so I had seen Piranha, and I told him, at that party, I'd seen it and I loved it. I thought it was the best new world picture ever. And he, he, he said to me, I like this guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> then I was doing publicity for genre films at Avco Embassy at a time of the great genre rebirth there with the howling and scanners and escape from New York and the fog and all of that. So I was doing publicity on the howling and he cast me and my ex-wife. We each had a line at the end of the movie. Um, where D. Wallace is turning into a werewolf and uh, they cut to us in our bathrobes and I'm flipping through TV guide and I say, what is this? That's, <laughs> that's about as good as it gets for me as an actor. Um, and I mean, freaking so, brilliant. We, we love a cameo like that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really fun. And I was flattered to have Joe 
ask me. And we've been friendly ever since. You know, I did the making of Gremlins and mm -hmm. uh, worked on things with him, hired him for a couple of episodes of Masters of Horror and for Nightmare Cinema. So we've been friends since, uh, you know, friendly since that party at Don Glutes and friends since uh, Avco Embassy. He's one of the nicest guy in Hollywood I've ever met. Just so great. So kind. And, and was, has he always been the font of film knowledge that he is? He is a living encyclopedia. I don't know if you listen to his podcast with Josh Olson, The Movies That Made Me, but mm -hmm. every yes. time, I mean, nobody needs to look anything up. They just look at Joe and ask him, oh, well, in 1947, you know, it was directed <laughs> by Roland Hastings. And, you, know, you even have a perfect Joe Dante impression. It's amazing. Oh, it it's gets, amazing. I, I can do a better one than that. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, I, I really, I love his voice. So. It'll be fine. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me very happy. <laughs> no, I love Joe. He's he's one of my favorite people. Me too. So you started out doing kind of documentary behind the scenes kind of stuff. Can you talk mm -hmm. us through how that came about? Well, basically because I hired myself. I was doing specialized publicity, like I said, at Avco Embassy. And mm -hmm. the first movie I was hired on for was The Fog. And so uh, I got a bunch of clips from the film before it was finished. And then I interviewed John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and, uh, uh, you know, any number of people involved with it, Rob Bottin, mm -hmm. and put together a kind of talking heads intercut with, uh, with video clips. And then I moved on to doing the making of Videodrome and the making of Scanners and and things like that for uh, so um, I learned how to put narrative together where it didn't exist you mm -hmm. know asking questions and then shooting behind the scenes stuff for these movies and doing gremlins for Steven Spielberg and the Goonies uh, and, and that sort of thing and it was because an EPK company would charge a hundred thousand dollars to the studio to do it. I would just do it for what it costs, which was like seven or $8,000 without ah. even get, getting paid because I was getting a weekly salary anyway. So, um, it was really just hiring myself because I could do it cheaper than anybody. And as well as anyone, at least in my brain. And it worked out because Steven Spielberg hired me to do two of theirs. So it was really, I mean, there you go. that's the hustle, right? Yeah, Amazing. But this, is, this is, you know, what, you know, so far we have, we're, we're like not even halfway through this interview. And so far, like, I feel like the lessons, like just do it yourself. Right. You started yeah. doing these interviews yourself. You're starting, you know, like, this is something like you could, you didn't wait for somebody else to do it. You're like, I'll just do it myself. Yeah, you, you can't. And especially as a writer, if you're not writing on spec, then you're not really a writer. If you're writing because you're going to think because you think you're going to make money writing, then you're probably not going to make it. Um, <laughs> you know, you do it out of the passion of writing because you can't not write. And filmmaking, when I was the age, uh, you know, beginning my interest in in making film. I couldn't afford to make a movie, even a short film. I, I did make a short film, but it was after I'd started working in publicity uh, and the like. But you can now use your iPhone beautifully like Steven Soderbergh and mm -hmm. cut your own films and mix your own soundtracks and score your own music and, and get the best actors and DP you can if you live in L.A. You know, it's there's nothing stopping you from doing some beautiful work and showing what you can do as a director. When I was starting out, 
writing was my first passion. And the hope was that I would be able to write successfully enough to allow me to become a filmmaker as well as a writer. And, and I was lucky enough that that happened thanks to Steven Spielberg. Do you ever miss the music? Nah. <laughs> really? I, I don't know. Opening for the Kink sounds pretty epic to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was very epic. And, and we had shows where we were the headliner. There would be a couple of thousand people. But the funny, wow. thing, uh, the funny thing about it is that recently, my old bandmates from the 70s, um, the three remaining bandmates I have, uh, one of them died in the 90s, mm. um, have gotten together and done some things very, very recently. Um, and, mm. you know, we don't do it the way we did, where we, the five of us used to be in a room together and we'd hammer out songs and, and all that. But we live in three different cities and we do our parts uh, in different cities and on different computers and, and put them all together like that. And, you know, it's assembly, an assembly line construction of music as opposed to sitting in a room and just hammering it all out together as a band. It's just a piecemeal uh, construction. But, um, you know, we just started to do it again after decades. Yeah. It, it's pretty fun. Yeah. All right. That's what I like I to hear. It. That's amazing. Band back together. Know, modern style, right? The yeah. band is back together. Yay. <laughs> You're on a mission from God. You got to keep it together, you know? A mission from God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then we sort of, we, we go from, you know, a kind of Spielbergian, amazing stories type situation into yeah. kind of the beginning of the horror type situation. So tell me about like this transition and was it something that the more you got into horror, the more you loved it? Uh, the reverse is actually true. I, <laughs> I've always loved horror, right. um, and but I always loved Spielberg stuff too. You know, I right. loved Jaws. I loved Close Encounters. All of that stuff. There was more of a sense of wonder um, that overlapped genres in those days of the science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, sure. And I always loved the dark stuff from from Alfred Hitchcock on, I mean, you know, Psycho is the first mm -hmm. slasher movie, but, yeah. but it's really smart and beautifully acted and it's great storytelling as well as just uh, breaking boundaries that a lot of modern horror films do. I actually just rewatched Psycho last night. Can I just say that? This was not, obviously yeah. not in preparation for this because I didn't know we would be talking about it, but now I feel like I'm on point. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, but it, it was not really a transition, but the opportunities that you get as a screenwriter or a director are the things that are available to you. I've written a lot of spec stuff and almost none of it has been produced. Mm -hmm. So the ones that get the green light are the Critters 2s and the Psycho 4s and the Fly 2s. Uh, you know, for a while, my career was by the numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, sequel, 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 yeah. In, in that regard, yeah. But... Um, the Stevens King relationship really kind of changed it for good. I had done Psycho 4 before that, and I had done Critters 2 before that, which was a very Spielbergian kind of, well, to the point of it being a sequel to a low-budget ripoff of Gremlins. Um, <laughs> but, did, Joe Don, did Joe Dante give you shit for that? <laughs> <laughs> no, he never has. Oh, good. Never has. Nah, Joe is a very gracious guy. No, um, he is. But uh, but really, it was once I did Sleepwalkers and I got that because Stephen King really liked Psycho 4 and he had mm -hmm. director approval. 
Um, oh, well, that must have felt nice. That's great. Well, you know, I'm doing two movies about boys and their mothers in a row here. So I guess there was a, a, a thread, a common thread, mm-hmm. but don't tell my mom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just once I, I had done Sleepwalkers and then King invited me to do The Stand, I was not only a horror guy, I was a Stephen King horror guy for years. And, right. um, you know, you, you become uh, typecast as a filmmaker, especially mm-hmm. within the horror genre, because that genre has so little respect. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I didn't mind being typed that way at all, because I loved being able to work with people like Stephen King. And, uh, and beyond that, when we were doing things of my own and doing Masters of Horror and the like, working mm-hmm. with Clive Barker and uh, Clive and I are working on a new project now. And oh, just, uh, that makes yeah. us so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, awesome. to, be, to tell you the truth. Yeah. So, you know, um, since the Stephen King thing, it's been much more difficult to work outside of the horror genre, but I haven't tried very hard. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I think, you know, people do get so like you have, I mean, I think you talk to any horror director because I remember I've talked to Stuart Gordon about it. We've, you know, we've heard about George Romero's like unfinished spec script. You're like, but who says yep. no? Why would you say no? It's, it's George Romero. What are you doing? And I feel like it's the same thing. It's like, but it's McGarris. What are you doing? Just say yes. Well, you, <laughs> well you and I know who we are, but uh, <laughs> the world at large out there does not. I'm always amazed when somebody outside of a horror uh, convention or, or podcast or something knows who I am. Hocus pocus, Mick Garris. Hocus yeah. pocus. You yeah, know? but you don't think of Mick Garris. You, you think of <laughs> uh, Kathy Najimy and Bette Midler and surrogate Jessica Parker and Doug Jones. Yeah. Well, I think about you, so there uh, we have it. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and Sleepwalkers, I think about the craziest CGI sequence that yeah. still haunts me to this day. Like Awesome. Yeah. But most people will think about Stephen King when they think about sleepwalkers and when they think of batteries not included um uh, they think of steven spielberg and you know amazing stories with steven spielberg certainly not mick garris but it, but it has your touches right like you look at those and you i mean it's obviously you like i can see it you know and i think well that's is, very I, kind yeah well we try we try but it's all <laughs> honest obviously like you know we're like super big you know Stephen King. I'm a super big Stephen King nerd, right? So like, she's the, the Stephen- biggest Stephen King nerd I know in real life. Like, she's <laughs> huge fan. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna out her right now, Don't just so you know. I would, I know I won't. Um, but no, she's read. She's literally on on the quest. She's one of the constant reader people, so she's read awesome. almost everything. You almost. Know, she also did it. Uh, I, okay. There's a lot. He's okay. always writing. Let, let's be let's be fair. I've been on a Where quest for for three years to read everything, and I am three books away from finishing. Oh, so there you go. You're ahead of me. No, she's she's, dedicated. She's a completist. She's done the pilgrimage to Maine. She's actually in the midst right now in pre-production. She just started casting a film that she's directing um, for her his dollar baby program. So she's doing. um, I know what you need. Yeah, nice. That's great. 
She's going to be filming this summer at the University of Maine in Stephen's old like dorm room. Wow. Um, she just, yeah. So, and it's, she's got all these fun Easter eggs lined up. And now she's talking to you. So she's going to try to calm down, but she's like, I know, excited because <laughs> we're talking to you and we're talking to you as well, like a big King collaborator. So she's wow. on the way. Terry. And I'm excited that she's going to do more. So I just know, like, we're making friends today and we're interviewing our heroes. Terry, and <laughs> stop. You're killing stop. me over here, man. I'm uh, blushing so, so hard. I'm so <laughs> <laughs> Good. So yeah, so well, this is a big day for us. I, I wasn't yeah. even able to shoot at the University of Maine for writing the bullet. You know, we no. had to do it. We had to do it in Canada for financial oh. reasons. Yeah, financial reasons. Okay, well, this is what movies are, right? Movies That's are financial right. reasons. Um, no, I'm just you it know, it worked out. Uh, it's the first time I worked in Vancouver, and I've worked there many times since, and I had a great experience. That's well, awesome. I, I I'm just to shoot a story in the place where it look, takes place is joy to me as the, as the, so, so can we, can I ask what is the first Stephen King book that you read? Uh, the first Stephen King book that I read was not Carrie, but it was Salem's Lot. Oh, okay. Mm, and I read them all one. as they came out. The only yeah. one, I think I've read every one of them now. And he's very kind enough to, to send me each of his books when they come out. So oh. that's, you're on the mailing list. He gets a book. <laughs> yeah. Great. And I sent him awesome. mine. So we're even. I don't know if he reads them. No, he does. Yeah. I'm sure he does. <laughs> no, yeah. he's he's given me a couple of very nice blurbs over the years. So uh Sam's off the first, but what is the favorite? Um maybe the shining. Okay. Maybe so, the Shining. Which is yeah. which is helpful, right? Because you adapted yeah. The Shining. Yeah. So it's it's true. And you know, it alternates between The Shining and The Stand, but I also love Gerald's game. Mm -hmm. And I love Lisey's story. Uh, you know, I I just think there's so much variety to what he does and and I really love it. So how was it for you to be tackling The Shining, knowing I mean I know that you know King was never terribly happy with the cubic version. Now it's good to be like his vision. You get to work with him on that. That's <laughs> a lot to take on, right? It is, and I approached it with a great deal of naivete. Um, I knew that he did not like the Kubrick film, and it was fairly well known that he did not like that film. And he had written the script himself, and he had chosen me as the director, and it was like, well, this is the best thing ever. I have my favorite King book, maybe my scare, my favorite horror novel of all time, if not certainly one of my favorite novels of all time. And having him trust me to put it on the screen after we'd had such a great experience doing the stand together, and then it's outrageous success. I mean, ABC told me at the time that it was the most watched miniseries in the history of television. Wow. So I believe it. I remember yeah. watching it and being obsessed. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody... It was one of those things everybody talked about the day after it aired, back when Water people cooler. watched it. Yeah. yeah, it was, and people, you know, watched them all at the same time. Or else, there was a huge number of people who recorded it during the week and watched it straight through that Saturday. Um, oh wow, that's a, yeah. that's a lot. That's a VCR. commitment. Yeah, yeah I, that I would, is a I mean, commitment. I would do it. I would binge it. That's no yeah. problem for me. Eight hours of Stephen King and Mickers, sure. Sign you. <laughs> But well, how so, was it to like, I feel like we've done that on a weekend anyway? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was very naive about doing it because I thought, you know, we are adapting King's novel uh, and he's written the screenplay himself. What could possibly be wrong with that? But once word got out, 
that it was being remade. All of these Kubrick, uh, the Kubrick army was like, he oh, has an no. army too. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, the director of Critters 2 doing The Shining? Ew. Uh, Who does he think he is? You know, it was, of course, Kubrick is a genius, was a genius and did amazing work. You know, the, the adaptation of The Shining that he did was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and we sure. did Stephen King's The Shining. Right. And there's a big difference and they both can coexist peacefully. Aww. They should and they do. They yeah. do. But, yeah. but as taking on, you know, you're going from kind of shorter documentaries onto television shows, onto movies, and now we're going on to miniseries where it's they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah. they, as a director, how stressful is that for you to just know that you have eight hours, you know, to do this thing justice? Well, with The Stand, it was really by far the hardest I've ever worked and hardest I hope I ever will work. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, not only was there no light at the end of the tunnel, there was no tunnel. Um, you know, it was a hundred days of shooting Oof. and, you know, shooting five days a week for the first 13 weeks. And then the last seven weeks was six days a week. Oh, God. And even when you're shooting five days a week, as you know from production, if you start at 7 a.m. on Monday, that means if you shoot a 12-hour day, you add in an hour for lunch, so you have to start an hour later. You start at 8 o'clock on Tuesday, 9 o'clock on Wednesday. If you're lucky, that's how it goes. But usually you shoot longer than that. So right. then there's fratter day where you start shooting in the afternoon because you, you try and set up your night shoots at the end of the week so that you have the weekend to recover. Well, Friday, you start shooting at three o'clock on on Friday afternoon and wrap up at four uh, at four o'clock on Saturday morning. Oh you need my. to do some sleep. So imagine where you know it's uh, it becomes your Saturday becomes your Sunday on the six day weeks, and you basically have about six hours awake before you start working again on Monday. How did you keep your sanity? Well, I wasn't the only one doing it. Everyone involved had to do the same thing. Sure, and, but I mean, like you're gonna, you're the director, right? You're gonna every like everything comes to you. So if anyone's getting the less amount of sleep, I should think it would be you. Yeah, well, which is true, but you just learn to deal with it. And uh, you know, who says I did keep my sanity? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> true, but true. <laughs> it, but it was great because I was surrounded by a bunch of really wonderful people, and King was there for off and on for about half of the shoot. And he's quite the cheerleader. Um, you know, I've said this before, but a lot of people, because I've worked with King so much, they think I'm his bitch. Uh, <laughs> that I'm here to do his bidding and that he tells me what to do and all that. And uh, I'm, I'm here to say that he has never once told me how he thought I should shoot a scene. Wow. And, That's really uh, nice to hear. He knows that there's a difference in the job between writer and director. And, uh, and, and if you see eye to eye, he's going to go to the mat for you. And he did on many occasions. And he's just one of the greatest collaborators uh, in the world. Aww. Respect. He sounds yeah. so nice. Mad respect. Oh, he's great. He's, he's better than nice. 
Oh, that's the thing that we love about the horror community is really, as far as we can tell, they're the best community there is just so supportive. And the people who make the craziest, scariest movies are the nicest guys ever. It's fantastic. That's why it makes and, and nice, nice guy production. Productions. I got it. Yeah. I got it. I'm on board. Well, the, the thing is, I put together a, a, a kind of informal group of filmmakers in the genre that we have dinners every now and then. We haven't in well over a year now. Uh, but where it's the masters of horror dinner, where we it's just a bunch of genre filmmakers getting together to have dinner and have fun. And you discover that really we gutter snipes are really uh, in the same world together. And it's it's a bunch of really, really great, creative, sensitive people who are just all doing the same kind of job and and supportive of one another. And outside of the horror genre, I don't see that kind of support throughout. Yeah, there's a real camaraderie, like even just everyone's shown up in everybody's films and like went in to check it out. I love that. I love yeah. all the cameos and like Cameo how that's like built in. Yeah. Built in. Yeah. Real uh, love so and support. I have uh, another project that I would like to ask you about. Uh, Stephen sure. King is involved. Uh, Stan Winston is also involved. Uh, this is Michael Jackson's Ghost. Yes. Can you talk about this. It's, if you I've like. seen it and it, it, I would love to. <laughs> you yeah. say it, like, please tell me about this, please. Well, it was a great experience when I was shooting The Stand. Um, Michael had asked Steve about um, writing a scary uh, music video for him that would be used for the end titles of Adam's Family Values, the sequel to the Adam's Family. Okay. So King wrote it and Michael uh, helped with the story and it was wonderful. And King told Michael, look, I'm working on the stand with this director. I'd love you to meet him because I think you'd get along really well. So we met and uh, we hit it off really well. Uh, Michael could not have been sweeter or more enthusiastic or more encouraging. And we got to know each other and we got to be friends. And, and um, then the producer of the stand, we were in post-production at that time. And I would have taken time to, to shoot during post-production, but keep everything going. And the producer said, absolutely not. If you do that, I will sue you. Oh. And so... <laughs> We managed to work it out and, and do it, but I only worked on the pre-production and then the shoot for about two weeks before Michael disappeared when, oh. that, when that first scandal happened. Oh, I see. So uh... He had left the country. We knew nothing about it. And again, whether it's true or not, I have no idea. My experience with Michael was entirely a positive one. Knowing his kids, they were great kids and got along great with him. Um, and Michael was a big kid. So, you know, it, it, in retrospect, it's painful at the time. It was a great experience. Um, but I don't know what happened and what didn't happen in my right. experience. I can't imagine it happening, but having seen the, uh, Neverland documentary finding Neverland, or no, that's the movie. Um, oh yeah, uh, the Johnny Depp movie. Yeah, yeah. Neverland Ranch. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah. you know, I stayed at Neverland a couple of nights, and I've been out there several times. And you know, I was never exposed to anything that made me think anything badly of Michael. However, that documentary was pretty pretty convincing, and uh, you know, I just I'm glad I don't have to decide what's real and what isn't real but mm -hmm. but the experience was good but michael disappeared 
and uh, it turned out he'd gone to Thailand, and we were we actually shipped all of the set to Japan. We were going to shoot the the music part in Japan. I'd shot everything except the music. And so we shot two weeks and never even started doing the song. So when you work on Michael time, yeah, it's, it's very different. And that, that video ended up costing $15 million. We, he had spent close to seven on it before we stopped. And then it was shut down for three years. And Michael would call me at like, I'd get a call at midnight. Um, hello, uh, Mick Garris, please. And I said, this is Mick. Gotcha. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, getting prank called. Oh my yeah, gosh. I know. I used to have them on recorded, but I don't know where they exist now since everything's voicemail now. Right. But I, uh, I think it's such a fun video. I think that, you know, there's so much, like he's such so down for effects, right? Like he has so much yeah. joy for them. I think that really shines through. Well, all that remains of what I did um, are outside the house and the effects of him smashing himself and stretching himself and all of that. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Stan Winston came in. They, they did a totally other two songs uh, when they finally did the music video, but it took them three years to get back on. And I said, I've got to leave. I'm doing The Shining and we have a hard start date. And with Michael, time is fluid. It's like a dolly. <laughs> sure. Thing, you know, it's, <laughs> but uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Stan, I said, Stan is a good friend of yours. You trust him. Why don't you have Stan directed? He's a really good director. And so that's what ended up happening. Wow. Um, so another thing, a movie that uh, you worked on that we just talked about on our podcast a few weeks ago is Nightmare Cinema, ah. which uh, are now I, I have a feeling that these these gentlemen that you are directing this co- uh, with are some of your master horror friend diner friends. Could I be absolutely right? every yeah. one of them? Every one of them <laughs> came to the dinners and stuff. But they were all people whose work, you know, I wanted to do something international. And the original idea was to do it like a Masters of Horror one-hour series where each of them would be shot in a different country by a filmmaker from that country. Um, We weren't able to get that off the ground, but uh, what we ended up getting was a Cuban director, a Japanese director, a British director, and then Joe Dante and I are the two token American directors. (laughs) And a a Mexican writer and, you know, people from around the world involved. And we did it for very little money. So everybody really just put their heart and soul into it and and really came up with something special. We hope there will be more Nightmare Cinemas to come, but uh, Ooh, we hope we'll so. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I hope so too. It's so like good to and scary one. and fun. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'd love to do one where it's all women directors, you know, and, and yeah. I would like to pitch you know. a director. She's really cool. Terry, She's very stop. into Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I, stop. I'm so sorry. Oh I like goodness. literally, I'm just here to be your hype woman half the time. I love Mutual it. Mutual support is very important. Yes. That's true. See, that's you. how it happens. He's just talking about people supporting each other. And you see, he just did a recommendation. He just literally showed me how to do it in the last like <laughs> segment right here. And say this person's very good. Yeah. And, lo and uh, behold. Who's, yeah. uh, whose idea was it to get Mickey Rourke for the projectionist? Because he's rad. Uh, yeah, yeah. My idea was originally Matt Frewer. And, ah. uh, you know, he's a good friend and I've worked with him more than any other actor. But uh, Mark Canton was one of the producers. His production company made it. And he used to be president of uh, Warner Brothers. 
He was the head of Columbia. He came in and replaced the previous head of Columbia when we, while we were shooting, shooting sleepwalkers. And uh, the original head of Columbia said, uh, nobody's going to make a movie where a boy fucks his mother while I'm running this studio. <laughs> and so okay, Mark Canton okay. came in and, and replaced him and had no problem with that. So, <laughs> so anyway, Mark was one of the producers and he said, you know, Mickey Rourke is a friend of mine and I think I can get him. And wouldn't you like to have an Academy Award uh, actor uh, in this little movie we're doing? And it was... Yes. It was hard to argue with that, especially with foreign sales, which was their bailiwick, not mine. And uh, it worked out great. I, Right before I started shooting, uh, I have a director who lives across the street from me. And I told him, it looks like we're getting Mickey Rourke for this. And he said, oh, the worst two uh, days of my life were shooting with Mickey Rourke on a TV oh. show. Oh, I, no. I started getting nervous. I talked to Robert Rodriguez, and he said, no, no, Sin City, he, he and I got along great. And so he came on the set, and, uh, and um, you know, I was a little nervous about it. But then once we started working together, and he, he knew what it was about and that I had written the wraparounds and all as well. And uh, he, he just had a great time with it. And uh, I yeah. really, I, I loved working with him. It was really fun. He looks like he's having a good time. He's just chewing up the scenery for you. I was just like, all right, get yeah. into Mickey. Yeah. Why yeah. Not let him go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to give a Mickey Rourke much direction. Um, so we wanted to talk to you today now, a little bit about uh, the 2006 version of Desperation that you did. Oh. Um which is uh, something, so I, I've read the novel, but I hadn't seen the movie yet. So I was very excited to see this for this. Ah, um, and took I, you a while. Huh. I, it did, it did. But I, but you have to, you know, it's been, it's been a thing. I had to read the regulators as well. We have to, you know, perfection okay. and everything. Um, so that's another question. Do you ever think about doing the mirror version and doing the regulators? You know, I didn't have the same reaction to the regulators that I did to mm -hmm. Desperation. I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I it, it did not uh, it did not resonate with me in the same way. You know, the regulators began as a script that King had written for um, uh, what's his name Sam Peckinpah. Oh, so he wow. was it was uh, an original screenplay he'd done for that, and then it never got made, so he ended up turning it into a novel as a Richard Bachman novel. See, how does that happen? How do you like Stephen King wrote the script, Sam Peckinpah's going to direct, and people are like, No, thanks. And you're like, What are you talking about? Yeah. That sounds incredible. I don't know if it was the studio or if it was Peckinpah. You know, King had written a draft or two of The Shining for Kubrick, and uh, Kubrick never even acknowledged them. Uh, so, so who knows <laughs> where the fault lay in that regard but right. yeah I, I love desperation and and i did not connect with uh, the regulators in the same way and what did you like about desperation well i love that it's a quest i love Kali and trajan his character mm -hmm. is so great um i love the idea of tack i like the idea you know although i am not a religious person king is a believer and uh, part of that comes with his AA um, okay. relationship. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I like the quest for spiritual peace, um, the idea of death not putting you necessarily at peace when it comes. I love the idea of tack trading bodies 
and infiltrating these different humans and making them monsters mm -hmm. and finding the monster within humanity. Uh, you know, I love the metaphor. And it was, I love desert noir. It's one of my, <laughs> my very favorite subgenre. And, you know, I've written uh, a desert noir novel called Salome. And I love movies like Red Rock West, things like that, that are, you know, John Dahl type thrillers, uh, oh, mystery thrillers. Just love his work. And this was our Stephen King, John Dahl movie, as far as I was concerned. I love the great open desert in Arizona where we shot. And, you know, the whole idea of desolation and desperation wrapped together just mm -hmm. really appealed to me. And you get Absolutely. another actor who I imagine you just wind up and let go, Ron Perlman. I mean, oh having gosh. a blast. And like every horror reference, every movie reference, I'm like, more. <laughs> just give him more lines. More Ron Perlman, please. Absolutely. And that's the problem with the movie. You know, if there is a big problem with it, is once Perlman's character, once Kali is gone, there's nothing that reaches those heights. And Ron told me when he was making it, even before we started, he thanked me. He said, this role is a gift. This is the best part I've ever had. And I said, but you just did Hellboy. Exactly. So he loved oh, Hellboy, but this was his favorite role at that time. And You can yeah. see it in his face how much fun he's having. Yeah, even with all of that makeup effects. Of course, he's a champion of that. But... Um, but, you know, we'd worked together briefly on Sleepwalkers before. And then again, he did mm -hmm. an episode mm -hmm. of Masters of Horror with John Carpenter. And, uh, you know, just working with any, him. Is there class. any? Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no, <laughs> um, go ahead. I was going to. Uh, I was just going to ask, if there, is there any fan theory that the cop from Sleepwalkers is actually the same one as from Desperation? Can I start that fan theory? If not? I think you should. Okay, it's done. It's Started. now putting it on the uh, internet. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> and, and I won't acknowledge whether you're right or wrong. That'll make it work okay. even better. Ooh, okay. yes, That's how you do Feeling it. The I'm, fire. Not saying. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Keep that mystery I don't have going. an answer. I don't know. I can't say either way. Oh, yeah, what, do you, yeah. what do you think? That's always the best. Oh, great. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, uh, Terry and I are both uh, mega fans of Annabeth Gish, so we just wanted uh, to talk a little about her because yes, wow. please. Yeah, well, I love Annabeth, and that was the first time we'd worked together. Then we worked together again on Bag of Bones, and then again in my episode of uh, Nightmare Cinema. Mm -hmm. And anytime you can work with Annabeth Gish and Matt Frewer, who is in Desperation, of course, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Weber. Henry Thomas. Oh, Henry Thomas! Who was also in my Masters of Horror episode mm -hmm. and was also in Psycho 4 and uh, in desperation, you know, once you have a great working relationship with somebody and you can tell immediately when you are simpatico, if you're able to draw those people together uh, on multiple experiences, it just makes life so much simpler and more pleasurable for everybody. Making a movie is hard work. It's complicated work. It's, it's challenging. The hours suck. But if you can surround yourself with people like them, and in this circumstance, having having Henry and having Annabeth and having Matt and all these people, it was just such a great, great experience. It, it was probably the most difficult movie I'd made since The Stand for some of the same reasons, but it didn't last as long, so it didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. But it was that. You know, I would say 
once Kali's character is is gone, though, um, a lot of the momentum uh, kind of lags a bit. I think it's kind of, but then you get to focus more on this, you know, this band of characters coming together to, right. you know, have one thing. And I love all the kind of, you know, obviously you have your little Easter eggs, like the little smiley face symbols, which consumers like me go, ooh, I get excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Red rum, all that. Um, but I love like, you know, you had fun with the old timey film strip and you had yeah. the Vietnam War flashback, which is right. uh, really beautiful. Um, okay. Thank here's you. a random a random fact for you. It's not, it's useless, but here we are. We're here. I'll say it. I'll tell um, you. My uh, my parents and I used to go to the Cedar City Festival, uh, Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City, Utah, when I was growing up. Uh-huh. And uh, every year they would do different Shakespeare plays. One year they did Romeo and Juliet, and I fell so in love with Romeo. And I like wrote him letters. It was intense. He wrote <laughs> me back. He was very nice. Um, and it was uh, Tom Parker, who is uh-huh. your young Johnny yeah. in this yeah. movie. Well, what's, what's hilarious? What's cool about him? is that uh, my older brother, who is no longer with us, was a Haight-Ashbury hippie and all of that stuff before he found Jesus and became a preacher. Uh, But uh, when we were shooting the Vietnam sequence, you know, he had had, uh, marched against the war in Vietnam and protested and all that stuff. But I cast him as one of the army guys in the Vietnam sequence there. And so he doesn't have any dialogue, but it was such a great time that we had together not too long before he passed away. So it's it's one of my my favorite uh, memories of filmmaking was having him on the set and he'd never done it before. And he just had the time of his life. Oh yeah, and you get to be in your brother's movie. I mean, yeah, that's the best. It was great, and and doing that silent movie sequence was something I really wanted to try, and really had a blast doing that. I'd never done anything like it before or since, and it was really so much fun to try and recreate a kind of cinema that has not been done in decades and decades. It was can one of my favorite parts. I love that. That's uh, yeah, so thanks. much. Me it's too. really you... effective. And I, I, I don't know. I didn't think it lagged. I, that's what I, I, anyway, I got into that part and just more of the, well, it picks the story up and the there. lore. Yeah. yeah. And the <laughs> yeah. lore right there. Yeah. It gets real crazy. Yeah. Can, so. you, can you tell us about the technical side of how you shot that sequence? Yeah. We actually used old cameras and, Ooh. and, you know, shot it at 18 frames a second rather than the standard 24 frames a second that you would mm-hmm. do. And it was shot on film, not digitally. And oh, that makes so, that makes my heart warm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now it wasn't all roses shooting that sequence because we actually, when the cave explodes and the cave in happens, um, we had to we couldn't use Fuller's Earth because that is potentially cancer causing. They have found, so oh, wow. we used walnut dust, which is not dangerous to inhale. Um, and it was common to use at that time. Unfortunately, when the explosion and the, the cave-in happened in the film, somebody kicked one of the lamps that was on the floor and it exploded and ignited that walnut Ooh. dust. And our whole set caught fire and, <gasps> and it melted the cave sets and all of that. It was really, really dangerous. And I had a fireball explode about 25 feet away from me. Uh, So, you know, we had a bunch of extras in there, as you know, so it was really terrifying. And I, you know, I was shaking for a couple of days after that because it could have been disastrous. And a couple of people did get burned, but not badly. 
it could have been so much worse, especially because of the set, the way if it had caved in uh, like it does in the movie, there definitely would have been a lot more, uh, a lot worse results. Wow, that is terrifying. Uh, mines and mine cave-ins are is actually one of my phobias. Yeah, so I don't this movie you. to me, I was <laughs> like, ooh, because I'm actually I'm from Nevada, um, so ah. I know all about the you know mining in Nevada and lots of cave-ins and terribleness. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, staying out of there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was a movie cavern, but uh, <laughs> but we had constructed it on the side of the the Tucson Recreation Center, or uh, you know where they have concerts and sports arena kind of thing. Huh. And that night they were supposed to have a, a country western star. What's what's um, oh uh, Keith Urban or somebody? Keith, oh, Keith I love Urban. Keith Urban. He was uh, supposed to play there that night, but <laughs> the whole uh, convention hall was filled with black smoke. Oh, so, wow. So it got canceled. So do you yeah. feel like you owe a debt to Keith Urban now? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Someone does, but it, it, it may well be the fire department who were across the street, but still took 20 minutes to get there. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. So they owed Keith Urban a debt. Do you hear that exactly. fire department? Tucson yep, fire. yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we have a, a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests who come on. So I have a, some questions for you, including, so uh, our movie, uh, our podcast, I'm a little nervous. Here we go. Our podcast, <laughs> uh, Horror Movie Survival Guide, is about how you survive a horror film. Yeah, so, I have the book. Uh, see, the, here you go. You are prepped. Yeah. So, we're not the book. We're, we're not, not the book. book. We're I know. separate uh, from the book. I know. I feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> but we want to know what, I mean, you know horror in and out. What are some of your tips on how you survive a horror film? <laughs> don't go. Uh, <laughs> don't go in the house. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I I enjoy not surviving in a horror film. <laughs> you know? um, That's I, like, Julia, I think that you're same. You like want to be covered in blood and want to be the dead person yeah. early on. Like, so maybe yeah. that's a better question. Like, how do you want to die in a horror movie? That's a better question. You want to go one of those crazy, like, Jason body in a sleeping bag against a tree kind of things, right? I want to be beheaded. I think yeah. that would be great. I want to see, you know, uh, Rick Baker cast my head. And, oh. uh, I do have a face cast because I was one of the zombies in Thriller. <gasps> what? What? Yes. Oh you drop this at man. the end like that? Yeah, what? you're just dropping the mic like it ain't no thing. <laughs> I, I thought I'd comb the internet, Mick, about you, but uh, I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. How was that? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was amazing. You know, John Landis and I had been friends for forever, mm -hmm. and uh, Rick Baker and I were very close friends at the time, and uh, so my wife and I were both zombies in thriller there are three kinds there are the background zombies which were basically masks and not made up very sophisticated mm -hmm. uh dancing zombies mm -hmm. and the close-up zombies yeah so they were more detailed and uh, so my wife and i are both close-up zombies in thriller oh. and it was amazing yeah I was hoping you were going to say dancing zombies because, like, we could do the thriller dance together, and that would there be my go. life. Yeah. Well, my wife <laughs> was a dancer, but she was uh -huh. not a dancing zombie. The gig was better if you were a close-up zombie. She I did bet. it. She worked for three days on it. I only worked for one, but uh, but you can see me. I'm the last one coming out of the ground, and I'm the grumpy zombie face. 
Okay. Done. I know I'm exactly who you it. are. Like, I'm yeah. going to rewatch, but I know exactly which one you are. I've watched the video. I don't know how many times in my lifetime. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I got the, wow. I have the Baker making of thriller on VHS. So I can just go over and watch it right away. This there is you the go. Kind of life I lead. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I know. I know. VHS are, are one thing. They're a nostalgic thing. My, but I have a wall. They're color coordinated. You got to give oh. me like points for that though. Uh, it's very the wall is insane. It's beautiful. It's a great backdrop. Double points. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. This was delightful. You are wonderful. Your voice is like silk. I could listen oh, to it all day. Well. Uh, Please, please do plug your own podcast and anything else you would like to. Yeah, well, Postmortem with Mick Garris just moved to the Dread Podcast Network. And we, oh, nice. we're in our fifth season now. And I don't know anybody who's had the kind of guest list we've had. We've had Stephen no. King, Clive Barker, Frank Darabont, Guillermo del Toro, uh, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, uh, Wes Craven, uh, um, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Patton Oswalt, which is how yeah. we hooked up. Uh, our friend. Yes, yeah. thank you to Patton. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's our fifth season and we're still going strong and I never thought it would last this long. I never thought I would enjoy doing this as much as I do. And I learned something from everyone. So we get new new interviews we post every other week. And then on the alternating weeks, we do post-mortem AMA where you can ask Mick anything. And we open it up on social media to questions before we record. So um, it's a ton of fun. And it's on all of the podcast apps that you might use. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Mick. We really appreciate it. You're a legend and a, and a gentleman and then some. So thank you so much. Wow. Um, you guys, thank you for joining us this week. You can find us on all the things on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and um, our Patreon and all that good stuff. Um, and at Horror Movies Bravo Guide, we'll see you again really soon with more, more good stuff. And thank you so much, Mick. We'll talk with you again soon. Thank you. Bye -bye. It was great being a sandwich with you. <laughs>